Amen. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. Turn into Judges chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. When you think about the buildup of war, when you think about it carefully, it, it's actually a pretty complicated affair. Consider World War II as an example. Dozens of events spanning the course of several decades needed to occur with perfect synchronicity in order to bring about what we now know of as World War II. Some say that the groundwork for World War II was laid as soon as World War I came to a close. They say that the conditions of surrender that were granted to Germany in the Versailles Treaty were so harsh that the Second World War was virtually guaranteed with the closing of the First. Well, it's easy to say that in hindsight. But history is complicated, and there is rarely, if ever, one single cause that serves as an explanation for, for why the winds of war blow one way or another. What we see when we study history is that actually a constellation of events need to align perfectly in order to bring to pass an event like World War II. So consider our country's involvement in that war. It is commonly understood that the United States entered into World War II because of Pearl Harbor. And yes, in one sense that is true, but only superficially so. Uh, the careful historian will ask, well, what led up to the events of Pearl Harbor? What led Japan to, to bomb Pearl Harbor? Did they just wake up one day and decide on a whim to go attack the United States? Probably not. In reality, the tensions between the United States and Japan had been increasing for decades prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The United States and Japan had both been vying for influence in the Far East, where the competition for market share and natural resources was fierce, and it was growing more intense with each passing day of the Great Depression. Moreover, the nation of Japan, like the nation of Germany, like the nation of the United States, had grandiose visions of its own supremacy, its racial supremacy, It's intellectual supremacy. It's spiritual supremacy. And all of this led the nation of the rising sun to set out on a massive campaign of conquest in the Far East, trying to gobble up as much land as possible from its neighbors like Russia, Korea, and China. As Japan attempted to conquer China, for example, it committed terrible atrocities. You've probably heard of the rape of Nanking. It made alliances with the Axis powers of Italy and Germany, and it took control of large portions of the world's rubber supply when it invaded Manchuria. Now, as tensions began to increase between the United States and Japan over these decades, so did diplomacy. Both nations entered into a a series of fiery diplomatic negotiations, spanning the course of years, uh, months and years, which towards the end of these negotiations, only seemed to make matters worse, only seemed to 
drive these two nations closer and closer to war. Finally, on Saturday, December 6, 1941, our War and Navy Department intercepted a message that instructed the ambassador of Japan, Ambassador Nomura, to officially reject any and all diplomatic offers made by the United States. But that's not all. There was something strange in these instructions to Ambassador Nomura. He was instructed to deliver the news of this rejection at exactly 1 p.m. the next day, Sunday, December 7th, a day that will live in infamy. The next day, Ambassador Nomura delivered the memorandum to the White House at exactly 1 p.m., which means that he was delivering this message to the White House while Pearl Harbor was being bombed. Japan did not want to merely insert the knife into the United States. It wanted to twist the knife upon delivery, and they did just that. Now, uh, this is a Sunday morning worship service. I'm preaching a sermon. Some of you may be thinking, like my wife, I hate history. Why are you telling me all of this? Well, it, as I was studying this week's text, as I was looking at how the Israelites were about to engage in a massive warfare campaign against the Midianites, it struck me that, that it just kind of comes out of nowhere in the book of Judges. The, the lead up to this war, for us the readers, is not obvious. Kind of like the lead up to Pearl Harbor is not obvious to us as we study history. It just kind of seems like there was us in Japan and then boom, there was a bombing and now we're at war. But surely that's not the case. In chapter 6, we see that the Midianites have been severely oppressing Israel for seven years. But then as we go through the text from chapter 6, verse 1, we have an account of the calling of Gideon. We have the angel of the Lord encounter. The food disappears off the rock. What's up with that? Then we have the destruction of the Baal and Asherah altars. And then we have the testing of the fleece event, which we looked at last week. And then as we move into chapter 7, we find Gideon, now Jeroboam, with 32,000 soldiers at his back. He's ready to wage war against the Axis evil powers of Israel. He is the head of the army. How did this happen? Was there a draft? Had Israel been building up their war machine for a year, for two years, for the entire seven years of their oppression under the Midianites? Had there been diplomatic negotiations that went sour? How is it that Gideon, the fearful and lowly son of Joash, now stands ready to lead the people of Israel into war with the Midianites? Well, friends, we just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. If God wanted us to know how that came to pass, he would have written it down. Nevertheless, here we are. Judges chapter 7, and God has much for us to see in this chapter now, there are three things in particular that I want to draw your attention to this morning. So, note takers, here they are. These are your three points. Point number one, the God of covenant. Point number two, the God of assurance. <coughs> Point number three, the God of glory. Let's look at point number one, the God of covenant. 
If you flip over from chapter 7 to chapter 6, verse 1, I just want us to look at the text and see it again. We see here, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Seven years of oppression. Now, as you'll recall, this oppression that they're suffering under the hand of Midian, uh, 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 of the Midianites, this is an act of discipline for the Lord. The, the people of Israel, the people of God, have turned from God and they've worshipped other gods. And because of that, they've come under the covenant curse. They're suffering God's discipline. But here's the thing about the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of the covenant. He is a promise-keeping God. He has promised the people of Israel, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will save you. And friends, when the God of the universe makes a promise, he keeps it. No exceptions. Not even the exception of the people's own disobedience. And so after seven long years of discipline, we see the God of Israel begin to remove his hand of discipline from his people. And he begins the process of restoration. And he's doing it through Gideon. But I want you to think about the nature of this time frame. Seven years. You know, some of us get sick and we're out for three days. And oh oh God, why? Why have you let this? I just got done with surgery, you know, which I'll tell everyone anytime they're willing to listen. And I haven't been able to work out for two weeks. Why God, two weeks? These people have been suffering for seven years. Think about what they must have went through. The trials and the tribulations. Think about the fear, the hunger. Think about those who were faithful, the idolatry they had to witness. Think about the prophecies of hope that they had to, okay, can I trust in this? Think about the, the broken hearts and the dashed dreams. Friends, you probably know this, but I'm going to say it again. God always preserves a remnant of believers among his people. Even when it seems like all is lost, even when it seems like everyone has gone apostate, even then, God keeps a faithful remnant among his people. In Genesis 6, before God flooded the earth, the remnant was small indeed, Noah and his family. In Judges 19, the remnant was even a little bit smaller, Lot and his two daughters, they alone survived the Sodom and Gomorrah event. In 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah, he thought that he alone had not bowed the knee to Baal, which is sometimes how a lot of us American Christians feel, right? God, we're the only one who hasn't given in to secularism. But God told Elijah that he had kept 7,000 faithful in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Can you imagine what it must have been like to, to be the remnant in, of Israel in these seven years? When everyone was just doing what was right in their own eyes? When idolatry was commonplace? When compromise was just as normal as a Tuesday? Who knows how many nights the remnant of Israel cried out to the, uh, to the Lord like the psalmist? How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? How long must we take counsel in our own souls and have sorrow in our hearts all the day? How long shall our enemy be exalted over us? 
well, your enemy, Israel, is about to tumble. It will no longer be exalted over you. The time of suffering is coming to a close, at least for this cycle in the book of Judges. The restoration will begin. Not because of Gideon. Not because Gideon's the man and because he's faithful. You're going to see in the very next chapter, Gideon falls from glory. And they don't do it because of Israel. We just saw right before this event that Israel still has Asherah poles and Baal idols raised up in the land. No, God keeps his covenant promise to Israel because he cannot break his promises. 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us this. He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Amen. Point number two, the God of assurance. Excuse me. As God moves to rescue his people from the enemy in their midst, he does so through military means. Now, here's a question for you, okay? A little thought experiment. If you were put in charge of raising up an army to go out and defeat the enemy of God's people, how would you go about it? What would you do? If it were me, I would probably try and recruit as many men as possible. And I'd probably have a pretty thorough screening test. I would want to recruit the strongest men possible. And I would probably want to make sure that I have as much advanced weaponry as possible. You see what I'm saying? I would want my army to be strong through and through. There's truth to the old adage, you don't carry a knife to a gunfight. And if you're Israel, you don't go to war against the Midianites unless you're good and prepared. And at first glance, it seems like Israel is doing just that. They, seem, they have 32,000 soldiers in their midst. Hmm. The only problem is that God is going to shrink this Israelite army from 32,000 down to 300. Not 30,000, not 3,000, 300. Look at verses 3 through 8. Go back to chapter 7, verses 3 through 8. Let's see how he does that. (coughs) Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. That's, by the way, how we get the 32,000. If you're bad at math, see me after the service. I'll explain. Verse 4, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, well, he shall not go with you. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. By the way, if you're going to ask me after service, uh, what does that mean? I don't know. Why did they lap? Why the lap? I don't know. Okay. Verse 6. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. Why does God do this? We're going to talk about exactly why God does 
this reduction in, in force and more in point number three. But for now, what I want us to see, what I want us to try to wrap our minds around is the utter impossibility of the task that God is calling Gideon to do. Look at verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east, that's who they were going to fight, they lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number. So how, how big is this army? Well, it's so big that they have so many camels that we can't even really begin to count them. That's how big they are. They're so big, the army's so big, it's like a swarm of locusts. Now, I just want to hang out on this a bit because the Bible's full of imagery that we don't always understand, but if we did, it would make the story really come alive to us. Now, we live in North America, amen, praise God, uh, which means that we don't experience swarms of locusts. So it might be hard for us to grasp what, what this author is saying. So let me tell you what, 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 this, what these swarms of locusts are like. A locust is a kind of grasshopper that's known for, and this is not my word, this is what scientists say, known for its gregariousness. But what, what does that mean? It means that this kind of grasshopper, it likes to socialize, right? It's, these grasshoppers are all extroverts, okay? And they like to get together in these big swarms, and when they do, they experience physiological transformations. Their body transforms. They change in color, they grow larger muscles, and they consume more and more food the bigger the swarm gets. These uh, socialized super grasshoppers, and, and this is a terrible irony, they tend to breed predominantly in dry areas like the ancient Near East. So what they do is they, they lay their, their eggs in dry soil and the egg just kind of hangs out there. And then when a strong rain comes, which means the crops grow, the locusts begin to breed and feed like crazy. How crazy? This crazy. Clouds of locusts the size of entire cities have been documented. Swarms have been documented as having upwards of 10 billion members. These swarms can destroy up to 400 square miles at a time, which, if, how big is that, right? About as big as the city of San Antonio. Swarms can be so massive that the carcasses of the dead locusts that fall away from the swarm can wreak havoc on their own. They can stop up wells. They can back up streams. Oh, and by the way, uh, these locusts, they don't just eat crops. They eat any organic material that they can Fine, they eat fresh wood, they eat leather, they will eat the clothes right off of your back. This is what the author of Judges has in mind when he describes the Midianites and the people of the east settled down in the valley, an army ready for war. A massive, utterly destructive force. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. We're getting ahead of ourselves. This is for next week, but I want to show you something. Now, Zeba and Zalmana, which, and that's definitely how you pronounce their names, they were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the armies of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men. So, what we're about to see is when God gives Gideon the victory, 120,000 die, and then there were 15,000 left. If you do the math on that, that means that there were about 135,000 people, warriors down in the valley. 
And here's Gideon with 32,000. Not good. And God says, Gideon, it's too many. It's, it's just too many. And he strips Gideon all the way down to 300. And, and then something happens that I think really highlights the character of God. God is exceedingly gracious in what he does next. God understands the utter impossibility, according to human understanding, what he's asking Gideon to do. So, he gives Gideon a dream. Or to be more specific, he gives Gideon the ability to listen in on someone else's dream. He gives Gideon the gift of assurance. God, are you sure? 130-something thousand people, just me and 300 people, are you sure? I mean, even a man with resolute faith, a man who is staunch in his confidence in God, would be inclined to doubt whether, hey, did I hear you right, God? Are you sure? 300? Because it sounded like you said 3,000. No? 300? Okay, just checking. So the Lord in his kindness gives Gideon the gift of assurance. Look at verses 9 through 14. The same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. It's go time, Gideon. It's go time. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant. Why? Because he was afraid. He did doubt. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. What's God doing here? He's doing two things. He's commanding and comforting. He's commanding something that's impossible. Which, by the way, if you grew up in a church full of cliches and you heard people say God will never ask you to do something that you can't, that's wrong, not true, unbiblical. That's kind of God's M.O. God commands us to do things we can't do all the time. But then he comforts us. He gives us assurance and says, don't worry, I'm going to be here with you to help you do this. And that's what God did for Gideon with this dream. One of the things that I love about Bible stories is that they allow us to see with fresh eyes in a creative way that kind of really gets at our heart things that God says all throughout the rest of the Bible in a thousand other ways, right? But it's just the power of story that helps us see. But you should know that this, this tendency in God to command and comfort, you see it all over. You see it in the book of 1 John. The beginning of 1 John says, I'm writing so that you may not sin. That's impossible. But then as you read through, God also says that he's writing, or John is, God is writing through John, so that you may know that you have come to know him. As you battle with sin, it's impossible. You're going to feel like you're losing, but God wants you to have assurance that he's here with you in the fight to give you the victory. If you look at Romans 8, God tells us that one of the reasons he gives us his Holy Spirit 
is so that we would have assurance that we would have victory in the battle. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies. That is, he tells us the truth even when we're telling ourselves a lie. He testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Or consider the language of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Therefore, you guys, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Think about the Great Commission. It is an utterly impossible task. We're supposed to go out to the nations and call on them to repent and turn to Jesus, even though the rest of the Bible tells us that the nations are hostile to God. The nations wage war against God. The nations do not want to obey God. They're under the influence of Satan. They love the darkness. They hate the light. And we're supposed to go to them and say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus so that you can completely obey him. The task of the Great Commission with us as utterly sinful and weak as we are, like Gideon, is a task that is infinitely more impossible than this battle. And yet God says, go and do it. He commands us, but then he comforts us. He says, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, this is impossible, but it's not impossible because I'm with you and I'm gonna be with you. This is the gracious God we serve. Now, let me give you a little application for how you should think about God's comforting of Gideon. In Judges 7, we see that God comforts Gideon through a miraculous act of providence, direct revelation and communication, and then this dream or vision that somebody else had in the camp. So the question is, should you expect God to give you assurance in the same way that he gives it to Gideon? Uh, Probably not. Probably not. I'm not saying that dreams and visions are off the table, but I am saying that God's word is on the table. I am saying that without a dream and without a vision, God has given us everything that we need to have assurance that we can do the impossible that he has called us to do, both individually and as a church. God has given us his Holy Spirit, which we already saw, bears witness to our spirit. God is with us. Even as he commands us, he's going to comfort us. He's given us the gift of the church. Hebrews 10.25, do not neglect to meet with one another so that when you come together, you can stir one another up to love and good works, right? We're trying to get to heaven. That's an impossible task. The world's shot through with sin. We're shot through with sin. God gives us the gift of one another to help us get there, a means of assurance. Think about his word. Now, by his word, I do mean just the overarching uh, narrative of Scripture, but I also mean the specific contents of the gospel. I, I want you to see that the gospel uh, is, goes to great lengths to, to tell us that Christ himself is our assurance. We think about his death on the cross. What does that tell you about your assurance? It says that you don't have to defeat the impossible enemy. You don't have to go out against the massive army and win because Jesus already won. And if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, and if you're united to him, then his victory is your victory. That's what baptism is all about. His resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven. Even one of the more neglected aspects of the gospel, his ministry of intercession. That is Jesus 
before the throne of the Father praying for us, going to God on our behalf. Louis Burkhoff says, says it like this. He says, Jesus prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. You remember in John 17, the high priestly prayer? What was one of the last things that Jesus did before he went to go to the cross? He prayed to the Father that we would have victory. He's still doing that today. Now, I know it, if, it, it feels like that's not much encouragement to you because you're like, wow, I, I can't really hear him, you know? He's up there in heaven praying, and I'm praying, and I wish I could hear his prayers. Listen to this quote from Pastor Robert Murray McShane. He says this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me even now. So, brothers and sisters, the next time you want assurance in the midst of a battle, do not look for a dream or a vision or wait for an angel to come and tell you that God is with you. Just look at the word, study the gospel, and believe what God has already told you there. Point number three, the God of glory. Now, earlier in the sermon, I told you that I would explain why God chose to reduce the Israelites from 32,000 to 300. Uh, I don't know why he chose such a round number like 300. I'm not talking about the specific number. I just mean the the act of diminishment. And uh, I think we see that in verse 2. Verse 2 is the most important verse in this entire chapter. And if you blinked during the scripture reading, you might have missed it. So let's go back and look at verse 2 again. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Why does God diminish the Israelite army? Because he knew that if he let his people go into battle with any semblance of their own strength, they would just... Listen to these words as you say them out loud. They would boast over God in their victory. They would brag over God. They would flex on God. They would dunk on God. They would posterize God. That's two posterizes in one week, by the way. They would say, yeah, look what we've done by the strength of our might. To put it bluntly, they would rob God of his glory. So what does God do in light of this spiritual reality? He strips them down. He brings them low. He makes them so obviously weak and incapable of achieving victory that when they do win the battle, there will be no question. There will be no doubt. There will be no possibility of them trying to have any glory for themselves. They will have to admit that God alone did this work, and then they'll have to give him the glory. Now, for the rest of our time together, uh, I want to give you three sub-points on this last point, okay? This morning's sermon is going to run a little long, but it's going to be worth it. If you pay attention and you let God's word speak to you, this last portion of the sermon may very well change uh, the way you view God and the rest of your Christian life. Not because of me, but because of God. So here's our first sub point. God is hungry for his own glory. 
God is hungry for his own glory. There's probably no text in the Bible that reveals the passion of God for his own glory more clearly than Isaiah 48. And Cohen, do we have the slides ready? Can you pull up Isaiah 48? (coughs) Is it not on there? It is? You got the scripture readings? No pressure. All right. Well, that's Isaiah 43. Uh, The first one must not have made it on there. Just listen to this verse. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my namesake, I defer my anger. And for the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. John Piper says that these, these verses give us the six hammer blows to a man-centered way of viewing the world and a man-centered way of viewing God. God says, for my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Piper goes on to say, What this text hammers home to us is the centrality of God in his own affections. The most passionate heart for the glorification of God is God's heart. God's ultimate goal is to uphold and display the glory of his name. And now we're going to see that as we survey God doing just that, giving himself glory throughout salvation history in the pages of scripture. So let's pull it up. Cohen. You got it, buddy? All right. God chooses his people for his own glory. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God created us for his glory. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God called Israel for his glory. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. God saves his people for his own glory. Our fathers, When they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Next, God raised Pharaoh up to show his power and glorify his name. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, this is like the main reason, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Next, God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. Do you see the same language from Judges 7? They will take glory over me. God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his own name. They were rebelling like crazy. God should have just killed them all. But he says, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. God gave Israel victory in Canaan, the promised land, for the glory of his name. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people? God did not cast away his people for the glory of his name. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not, a turn, do not turn aside from following the Lord, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. Jesus, when he was here on earth, sought the glory of his Father in all he did. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus told us as people to do good works so that God would get the glory. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Next, Jesus said that he answers prayer so that God would be glorified. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Next, Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for God's glory. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Next, we see that God forgives our sins for his own sake. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. For your own namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Next, Jesus receives us into fellowship for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Next, we see that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. God instructs us to do everything for his glory. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Let that be the thing that that governs your life. God tells us next to serve in a way that will glorify him. Whoever serves... Let him do it as one who serves by the strength which God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus will fill us with the fruits of righteousness for God's glory. It is my prayer, says the Apostle Paul, that you be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All are, are, excuse me, all are under judgment for dishonoring God's glory. They became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the immortal, excuse me, the glory of the immortal God for images 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Herod is struck dead because he did not give glory to God. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Jesus is coming again for the glory of God. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed. Jesus' ultimate aim for us is that we would see and enjoy his glory. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Even in wrath, God aims to make known the wealth of his glory. Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God's plan to fill the earth it is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everything that happens will redound to God's glory. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. In the new Jerusalem, the glory of God will replace the sun. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. In this verse, I think we also see that the great reward for us as Christians is the glory of God. So, how does God feel about his own glory? He's zealous for it. As zealous as anyone could ever be for anything, God is zealous for his own glory. And that is bad news for us, friends, because in our sin, we are glory hogs, which leads me to the second subpoint of point number three. We rob God of his glory. There's something you should know about human beings. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the most important things about us, and it's that we are built to boast. We're built to brag. We've been designed, to use another word, to glorify. It's just part of how we have been wired. Now, God's good design for us is that we see him, that we love him, and that we glory in him. God wants us, without sin in the way, to look at him and to go, God, you are so beautiful. You are so loving. You are so powerful. You are so strong. You are so, and then we can just keep going like an endless love letter. God loves this. It's what he loves more than anything else in the universe. But you know how the story goes. Sin enters into the equation. It ruins that. It causes our glory mechanism to malfunction. And it, it causes us, we're supposed to have these tendrils of glory that go out. We just reach out to God and, and those tendrils glorify him. But sin causes us, as St. Augustine says, to curve in on ourselves. Which is why the prophet says in Jeremiah 9, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Not, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Why does the prophet tell us not to boast in these things? Because our natural sinful inclination is to look at any good gift that God has given us and take credit for it. 
to boast in it, to boast over him in it. Now let's bring this back to Judges 7. We had to do a lot of groundwork there. Let's bring this back to Judges 7. The question is not, will the Israelites glory after their victory? Yes, they will. That's what they're built to do. A better question is, in whom will they glory in their victory? And verse 2 has already told us, left to their own devices, Israel will boast in themselves. They will boast over God. Therefore, God says, I'm only going to save you one way. I'm going to save you in such a way as to eliminate the possibility of any self-glorification, which leads me to the final sub-point. Number three, God's philosophy of ministry. What we see in Judges 7 is one expression at one point in time in salvation history of a much larger truth that we see all throughout the rest of the Bible, all throughout the rest of salvation history. And that truth is this. When God saves his people, no matter when he does it, no matter how he does it, every single time that God saves his people, he always does so in such a way as to eliminate their glory and to increase his own. This is God's philosophy of ministry. And I can show you that from the New Testament. We read in our scripture reading this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. And if you recall from that reading, Paul tells the Corinthians that he chooses, God chooses to save these people and not those people. These people and not those people. And, and what is the guiding principle why does God choose to save these people and not those people? Well, Paul, first of all, he says these are the people that God chooses not to save. He doesn't save the noble. He doesn't save the powerful. He doesn't save the wise, according to worldly wisdom. Instead, he saves the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, the things that are not. People like you and me. Why does God reject the noble, the powerful, the wise in favor of the foolish, the lowly, the weak, and the despised? Well, he says so right in verse 29. He says, so that, mm, if you go back and you look in your Bibles later, just circle that, circle that a bunch of times and then put arrows pointing at it. It's a very important phrase. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You get saved, you live, you die, you go into the presence of God, what are you going to do? Are you going to boast in yourself? I'm here because I was smart, because I was rich, because I was talented. No, 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 no. You'll say, I was foolish. I was weak. I was low. I was despised. I was the things that are not. And then if you go to verse 31, circle the so that again. Put more arrows, underlined, stars next to it, exclamation points. So that. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're a true Christian, you, this is your identity. If you think that you're noble, if you think that you're powerful, if you think that you're wise, if you think that you're strong and mighty, you're not. And if you are, you may not be a Christian. And you better believe it, that if you really are saved, when you get to heaven, you will boast in the Lord. Because you will be fully aware. Right now, you may be deceived. 
You may look at yourself and think that you're something. You're not. But when you get to heaven and you bask in the light of God's holiness, then you'll see. Then you'll know. And you'll see really and truly who you are. And in that moment, you will fall down on your face. Whatever pathetic Burger King crown you think you have on your head, you're going to cast it down at his feet and you're going to say, I boast in you, God. I boast in you. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? I'm no one. I'm nothing. You're everything. Why have you saved me? You can start feeling that way right now. You should feel that way right now. You should know that God is building your life up in such a way so that you can begin to feel that right now. You can stop boasting in yourself right now. The reason why God does everything the way that he does it is so that you will stop feeling that way right now and you'll start feeling the reality of who you are. In Ephesians chapter one, God says this. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that, circle it, so that no one may boast. You want to boast. If you get the chance to boast, you're going to boast. God's not going to give you the chance. His philosophy of ministry is designed to eliminate that possibility entirely because he knows that if he gives it to you, you'll take it. But it's not just in the initiating act of salvation that God eliminates boasting. It's also in sanctification. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he's received as an apostle, a thorn was given me in the flesh to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God knew God knew that Paul would boast in himself. Yes, the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote like, you know, a third of the Bible, the one who set the church on the trajectory that it is still on now, 2,000 years later, the one who had a vision of Christ, the one who was a capital A Apostle. If he had a chance, he would boast in his glory. He would glory over God. And so God sends him a thorn in the flesh. And why? To keep him weak. To reduce him down to the point where he could take no credit for anything that he was doing. Do you know that God is doing the same thing in you and in me if we are really Christians, if we really belong to him? The same thing that he did to Gideon and Israel, the same thing that he did to the Apostle Paul, he's doing that in us. I don't know how God is keeping you weak Maybe he's allowing you to pass through a season of depression and anxiety. Maybe he's allowing you to go through a season of brokenness in your marriage. Maybe he is allowing you to go through some sort of physical ailment that you just feel like is crippling you. You just can't function with this pain 
that you're experiencing all the time, every day. I don't know what your thorn is. I don't know what weakness God is blessing you with. But I do know that God is using that to protect you from your own glory-hogging tendencies. And that is good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul asks this question. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Well, that's us. We want to boast in our strength, our wisdom, our riches, our success in ministry, our our victory over addictions, our obedient children, our healthy marriage, even our salvation. And when we do that, we're like a, a kid who brags about how rich his dad is. We're like a person who gets liposuction and then brags about how skinny we are. You know, it, just, it doesn't make any sense. What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. So then what grounds do you have for boasting? Answer, nothing. You have to understand that the story of Gideon and the 300 is your story too. It's mine. When Amber and I <coughs> were getting ready to go, go to the jungle as missionaries, we, uh, we received a list from our missions agency about everything that we would need to be well taken care of down in the jungle. You know, this is, this is what you're going to need. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it at all. But as we looked at the list, it felt very much to us like 32,000 soldiers. And independently of one another, Amber and I looked at the list and we felt, this is too much. And we came together and we talked about it and as we worked through the list, just one item after another fell away until finally we threw the whole list away. We just felt like the Lord was leading us to go down to Peru with no support other than prayer. Not saying that you have to do that or that everybody should do that or anyone should do that. But that's what we felt, probably because we're most inclined to be glory hogs. And what we found after we got rid of that list and we decided to go down with no support is, well, 32,000 all the way down to 300. And when we got down there, we, we really understood why God was doing that. We saw a lot of missionaries with a lot of resources doing a lot of boasting over God. I wish that wasn't true. And I don't think I'm better than them, but it is the truth. I think about the story of this church. Low, despised, not very noble, not very wise. God is doing that on purpose. He leaves us with this lovely blue carpet and these ratty benches on purpose. Guys, do you know how long we've been trying to put a sign up in front of this building? There's a church that just bought a building down the road like two weeks ago. They already have a sign up. We can't get a sign up. I don't know why. It just feels like the story of this church when it comes to finances, when it comes to beautification of our building, when it comes to you having a weak pastor like me, it just feels like the story of this church is that we are God's 300. Which is not something to brag about. It means that if we had the chance, we would boast over God. And God's not going to give us this chance. And so I am delighted that he has allowed us as a church 
to be as low and despised as we are. Maybe God is diminishing your strength right now. Maybe God is emptying you of anything and everything that might lead you to rob him of his glory. Let's not pretend like that's not going to hurt. Let's not pretend like that's not going to be scary. It is. It hurts. It's terrifying. But God has a purpose in your diminishment. It's not arbitrary. Somehow, some way, God is working for your good and his glory. So fear not, brothers and sisters. God himself knows what it's like to be stripped down to nothing before he entered into the battle. Our Lord Jesus was as strong as anyone could ever be. He was as strong as God himself because he was God himself. And yet, before he entered into the battle with sin and Satan and death and hell, he was made weak. Weaker than me, weaker than you, weaker than Gideon, weaker than this army in Judges 7. He was made as weak, well, as, as a dead person. He sacrificed his eternal glory. And then at the, at the pitch of his weakness, he went into the black hole of glory. He went on to the cross. And there he was made to be weak in sin. And there he suffered the consequences of sin for three days in the grave. But on the third day, he was raised victorious. The weak was made strong. The one who lost the battle was made victorious. And I want you to know that if you love God, you must love his glory. And you must willingly embrace your own weakness because you must understand that your weakness is the path to God's glory. And when you do that, you should know that not only will God be glorified in you, but you'll be glorified in him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you've shown us yourself this morning. Your spirit has revealed the truth of your word to us and the power of gospel has come home to our hearts. And so all we have left to do is praise you. Help us to do that now. Amen.